David and I agreed that sort of a good theme for our session today, we sort of titled together Leadership Lessons from Disney. And I thought maybe the best way to get started is to is for David to sort of briefly share with us, David, your your journey. How'd you get to the Disney Institute and and it led you to your present day starting your own company engagement. So if you would just give us a little peek yeah. inside your journey. I'll give kind of the brief uh the brief version. I'll give, I'll give the medium version and we can unpack it from there as, as you Good. want to, cool. um, whatever pieces you find interesting. So um, it honestly started uh, when I was probably about six years old uh, when, yeah, great, great start to a short story as I bring it back to six years old, but um, probably, probably started when I was six years old and my dad, actually Mike Malay took a role with the Walt Disney company. And so he got brought in to really be the first executive at SPN Wide World of Sports uh, he was one of the founding fathers of sports tourism. And so Disney said, who better to help them start a sports complex 25 years ago? Um, and so he came in, moved our whole family over there. And so I, I really grew up in the intersection between sports and Disney, uh, both of those kind of two worlds. And uh, all, all growing up, I was just naturally exposed to it. Uh, in college, I I never thought I would ever go work for Disney. Uh, I was going to go work for, my vision was I wanted to be an athletic director. And so uh, where I saw the industry going was much more focus on business and having that business acumen. So I wanted to get a role with a big fortune 500 company as kind of an entry level business analyst, build my acumen. Then I would go on campus. But as it turned out, uh, when my, when I was a senior, uh, Disney Institute was realizing, hey, there's a lot of similarities between sports and entertainment and what we do here at Disney between parking cars, taking tickets, customer service, uh, a lot of third parties that end up working. People come the first time for the product on the field, but they come back because of the memories and the magic and that happens. Um, so why don't we go consult with those different companies? And so with my kind of background and interest in sports business, not just sports, uh, I ended up going and working for Disney Institute and uh, kind of buffed the trail that I was on. Um, so I was at Disney Institute for about seven years before starting engagement. Um, and, you know, I started off there as an intern when we were just starting to get in the sports world, um, kind of worked my way up, got promoted a few times uh, in those, those couple of years that I was there. Um, and yeah, uh, it was a, it was a great journey. Um, I mean, one of the toughest things was going from that, that hourly individual contributor role to then leading people that were older than you. Um, that was definitely a challenge. And yeah, a lot of challenges along the way, but that's kind of how I got to Disney uh, in the first place. Cool. That's, that's cool. That's great story. I love the way you started from when you were six years old. So I'm sure there's lots, <laughs> lots of sort of goodies along the way, but um I'm sure those seven years were sort of full of just amazing experiences and probably a lot of learning. And I can tell you for me in my four years at Disney, I had um, probably the steepest learning curve I've had in business. Um, just, just from a creativity standpoint, a strategic thinking standpoint, um, the magic of a brand, all of those things sort of became more real to me as I sort of lived the Disney experience as a professional in my role in the consumer products group. But even today, as I fast forward, and as you know, I 
do leadership coaching in college athletics, I always say that in leadership, before you can lead, it all starts with getting to know you and yourself. And so much of that is sort of based on one's, what's talked about often today is one's emotional intelligence. You know, how are we aligned with our values? Um, So we can be leading with purpose. And I've always been curious about Disney and the Disney Institute. Might you talk to us a little bit, David, about your insights about the mission of the Disney Institute and how does it inform their approach to leadership? And then to that point, how does it inform you and the work you're doing today? Yeah, uh, really interesting question. Uh, I'll kind of give a a longer answer here. but feel, feel free to interrupt and go in wherever you think it's interesting. So um, Disney Institute was really founded out of uh, Tom Peters' book, In Search of Excellence, I don't know, 25, maybe 30 years ago at this point. Um, and really, it, it highlighted a bunch of Disney best practices in that book. And it was really the first time that anybody had peeked behind the curtains. And so the Walt Disney Company got a bunch of phone calls saying, hey, we want to know more. We want to know more about what you're doing from a leadership perspective, from a culture perspective, from a customer service perspective. Um, can you tell us more? And Disney, which I always, Mike on our team, who's my dad, right? Uh, now at engagement. Um, you know, we always joke that Disney, even though it's an entertainment company, it's really a finance company with an entertainment facade. And, uh, you know, we got enough of those calls asking for more peaks behind the curtains that we said, Oh, we could probably start business here. And that's really kind of how Disney Institute got founded in collaboration with Michael Eisner uh, going on a trip to uh, another kind of learning center kind of thing. And it started off as a physical institute. So if you wanted to have an alternative to going to the theme parks and you were more focused on education, you could come down to Disney and actually learn and take animation classes and pottery classes. Um, But the, the purpose of Disney Institute has never changed, even though the vision and the trajectory remains the same or the, the, the vision and uh, kind of what it does has changed, but the purpose has always remained the same. And I think that's really what I would encourage all the people listening as a leader. That's really kind of where you, you make your stake in the ground, right? Your purpose is, is there. And it's the same thing with the Walt Disney company. The purpose has always been the same, which is ultimately to create happiness. And even though the way that we do that has changed a number of times over the years, right? And it has to, because if you're not changing and evolving and moving with the times and adapting to the needs of your customers and your employees, you're going to fail. So the purpose of Disney Institute has always been the same. So as a subset of creating happiness, it's really been about educating and how can we kind of bring edutainment to the world, if you will. So this kind of fun learning um, and, and that has always been the mission of Disney Institute or the the purpose of Disney Institute, even though it's been through a number of iterations, right? So it started off as a physical institute. um, And what we realized was the most popular courses were always about leadership, culture, customer service. They weren't necessarily about pottery or animation or some of those other things that we were offering. And so eventually we said, all right, most feasible thing to do is to double down our efforts on those content areas. Let's eliminate all the, the extras, the things that aren't really getting as much attention and it kind of came into this, this bigger, um, more professional development, if you will, uh, from a business sense. And what we found, though, is that CEOs of a company would come down, take a three-day course, 
and say, this is so great, but I can't afford to send hundred people from my team down to, to Disney Institute. And so what we said is we, this is when the business started to evolve a little bit. And we said, okay, well, we'll fly out to your organization and we'll teach this three and a half day course on site. And then naturally what happens is people said, okay, I want more than the three and a half day course. Can you actually, instead of just showing me what Disney does, can you kind of help me implement some of these things in my own business? And that's about the time that I came into the Walt Disney company. Uh, and Disney Institute is when we were just starting to get into that consulting space. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a really interesting time. It was kind of the wild, wild west in that people were, our leaders were great in that they said, hey, if it's going to make impact for our guests or for our clients and it's going to make us money, go try it. And so those first couple of years that I was there, I mean, we were doing wild and crazy things. Everything from having industrial engineers and Imagineers come look at Barclays Stadium to advise on signage and wayfinding. I learned a lot in those years. Um, but then let me you, ask you a quick oh, question, if yeah. I might. I don't mean to. I think it's so. No, no, interrupt, interrupt. When you talked about leadership and culture and entertainment as sort of the three pillars where people sort of gravitated, which I think is really neat. I'm curious. Is out of those three, is there one that you think that informs the others? For instance. Yeah, the backbone of the Disney Institute's approach about what is it about culture that helps us lead our people and build the type of organization? Can you talk to them? I'm just curious. Sure. Um, and so this, this actually is kind of why, part of why we started engagement. Um, but the way the Disney Institute's content is structured, I believe culture is really their strongest piece. Um, most people come for service. Um, when I was there, leadership was actually probably one of the least popular of the three. Um, and I think that was more because of how we structured the content. So as you can imagine, I mean, Disney Institute, as much money as we were making, didn't add up to popcorn sales of the magic kingdom in a month. Right. So the way that we structured our leadership approach was really about something you said earlier, which is ultimately if I'm sitting in a three and a half day course on leadership from Disney, what I'm going to hear about is how do I align my personal values with the organization's values? And ultimately if you're, if your personal values don't align with your organization's values or vice versa, it's not going to be a good fit. And so the course is really all about how do I define my values? How do I identify my values? How do I deliver on those values and how do they, uh, how do they align with the organization that I'm working at? So, it was much less like executive coaching. And I think some of the things that you do um, because Disney just didn't want to take that risk, right? What if we were working with the leader and doing executive coaching and then it comes out that he's in a big scandal, then Disney's now at risk and somebody's going to come after Disney because there's money there. So we wanted to distance ourselves. And because of that, I think the content itself actually suffered a little bit. That's That's interesting. I've always been curious about culture and it, I guess it doesn't surprise me to hear you say that. I always felt that, and as you and I both know, certainly at Disney, there are many pieces that one can use to inform one's culture. And you have to sort of live it. You have to sort of breathe it. The, The attention that we take to someone who cleans the parks, to the quality of everything that we put out in consumer products, it's vast. And that 
informs everybody in feeling good and a sense of purpose that makes the end result, as you said, is that it makes people happy. Yeah. And to you, it has the ability to. That's exactly right. It, it has the ability to. So I think that's, I think that's really neat and how, you know, the other thing that I talk about a lot in the work that I do is we talk about one's individual brand mm-hmm. and how one's individual brand has similarities and how it behaves like a consumer brand. Okay. And even when I was in the agency business, one of the things we talked about is what is the essence of a brand? Is the essence of a brand connection where you really love the brand? Is it a place where you have this ultimate sense of emotion and ultimately you respect the brand? But that deep love connection with the brand is where it really resides. I'm always been curious. I don't have the answer. I lived it for a few years, as you did. I've always been curious about the Disney brand. How and why does it, why do people think it's so magical? What is it about the Disney brand that is, in my opinion, has that magic? And I will just preface it by saying, my wife is from Southern California. She grew up with Disney. Both of my daughters in their travels to the the southern part of California went to Disneyland as part of their childhood. What is it that makes the Disney brand so strong? And how does that inform leadership? Yeah, that's a a great question. Um, This is my opinion on it, right? But I, I believe it really drives from having that super intentional structure on culture um, that ultimately leaders have to drive, right? You don't, you don't have culture if you don't have leaders. Um, leaders are, are driving the way that we do things, which is kind of what we consider culture. Um, it, there's a, there's a great, uh, a great series on Disney plus Tom. I don't know if you've seen it. Have you seen the Imagineering story yet on Disney? I, plus? I have watched watch that? pieces of it. I have. I have. So I thought that was, that was a fabulous insight into your question of what makes Disney's brand essence so strong? What makes that magic? Um, There's a lot of principles, underlying principles in that series that really identify it. Um, But I I really believe that it's, it's kind of about this overarching thing that they haven't identified a larger purpose. The leaders, Walt from the very beginning said, our company purpose, no matter what your role is in the show, whether you're an engineer, a finance guy, somebody taking tickets, your overarching purpose is to create happiness by providing the finest entertainment for people of all ages everywhere. Right. And that purpose was then supported by different service standards, if you will. So first it was safety, then courtesy, then show, then efficiency and in that order. Right. So no matter what we'll sacrifice courtesy for safety and that's coming to light now in, in, in the light of this crisis, um, you, Safety has to be first and foremost. And so I think because they really ordered and prioritized the way that they did things, um, they were really successful. And I, I think additionally to that, they, they Walt always had a focus on quality will out, right? Um, 
let's give people the best that we can. Let's give people the highest quality content or products or service that we can. Let's do right by people. And we'll build a business model based on that, right? And, and a lot of companies, I think, do the reverse, right? They make business decisions based on the numbers, not based on what's the best thing that we can do by our employees and by our customers. And I think that those, the combination of those two things, that overarching mindset addition and paired with really intentional structure Mm. on priorities, um, those two things really, I believe, uh, have have helped drive the Disney essence. I'm, I'm curious about them. That's great, David. I, I, I well said, I'm, Curious about two things, and I'm sure maybe the listeners might be curious. Tell us a little bit about, in a nutshell, Disney Imagineering. What is it? And why? Sure. Um, so uh, Disney Imagineering, ultimately, right, it, it was the group of people that had eclectic roles that were brought together to build Disneyland out in California. Um, so it was everybody from costume designers to song lyricists to rock detail engineers to uh, architects, uh, anybody really working on that park from a creative perspective from all different disciplines got brought together in one group. Um, And it was this beautiful blending of science and art and math. And we still have that today. And the Imagineering group really drives a lot of at least parks and resorts, uh, that segment's success. Uh, They really kind of are the owners of the brand, if you will. Despite having a marketing team, despite having a communications team, despite all of that, the Imagineers really own the essence of that, of the theme parks. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think a lot of the magic comes from the theme parks, in my opinion, because Mm -hmm. everybody's got, everybody has, uh, uh, so many movie theaters have movies that they show, but I think where part of the beauty of Disney magic came was when they said, let's bring these characters off the screen and into life. And nobody had ever done that before. And I think that almost was a a little bit of magic in and of itself. Yeah. Well, you know, to your point, and I think that's really a great point is, is that how they bring those characters to life. And I can tell you first person, my daughter's experienced that growing up and they really believe those characters were real and they formed an amazing connection and affinity for them, what they did, how they acted, how they appeared. And going back to sort of that larger purpose that Walt set out to do, as you said, which is, you know, everything we put out has got to be quality, but at the heart of it is why we're doing it is to make people happy. Because I always say, it's the first question is, why are you doing it? And I believe to everything that you've said, which I absolutely understand is that the essence of why Disney does things is to entertain and delight people. And it goes right down to making sure that someone is picking up a napkin that's flying off somewhere into a garden. Absolutely. Making sure that we get their tickets to them expeditiously and everything that you know better than anybody that makes that mystique and that brand come to life. So it's really cool. I think what you said about going back to what, Walt's greater purpose was that yeah. sort of attention to detail. And so that's really cool. And, and I mean, look, there's, there's no question the Walt Disney company has responsibility to its shareholders and has to make money. Sure. Everybody has to make money. You're, you're, you're not an or a business, even nonprofits 
in order to survive and, and give to their charities have to make money. But the making money is a result of the larger purpose done right. Right. And, and the larger purpose is how you can differentiate yourself and attract talent as a leader. Right. Um, or, and attract your customers. And so if you, if you do the best job in the world, creating happiness, which was Disney's purpose, the money would, would come. And, and we knew that. Yeah. Well, you know, there's, um, in, co- in the college world, there are many schools that talk about sort of their purpose. And one of the schools, I would, won't mention it by name, that one of my daughters went to is they talk about the common good. And we always, it's always been my impression that at Disney, they serve the common good by making people happy. Um, yeah. They believed in the customer because at the heart of it, if we're not delighting every day that appeals to everybody who is here to make them leave as though they had the most fabulous experience that they came away with happiness on their face. Um, that's the common good where we're doing the right thing. And even in the horrendous situation that we're all in today, I think that Disney sort of stands tall as being a company that does believe in, we want to do what's right by our customers because we have to make them happy at the end of the day. And that's a, that's a special brand that does that, that knows how to basically be loved. Well, and and look, I mean, the thing is with, with that is it's not, if, if as a leader, if you're listening to this and your, your thing is just, Hey, we got to do the right thing. Like that's not good enough. Um, You really have to define what is the right thing. Because everybody's version of what is the right thing is different. And so that's where at Disney, I go back to those, the service standards that drove every decision internally for us in, in the parks and resort segment. We're really about safety first, courtesy second, show third, and efficiency fourth. And, and the, that was the order that things got decided in. And it, it's those, having those clear priorities should guide you in a time of crisis like right now. And that's why I think it was last week, one of the most searched things on Google was when is Disney reopening? Because everybody knows that if Disney reopens, it's safe for all the rest of us. Because even though it's a place about making happiness, they know that happiness can't happen if it's not safe. And everybody trusts Disney that we trust them with our safety hundred percent. And it's because they've established that, that essence, that tradition, right? And, but they've got that, those priorities are clearly, clearly articulated and hammered home every single day with leaders throughout the organization. Mm. And so that's where you can't just have something like do the right thing. You've got to have priorities, operating priorities underneath that. Right. Well, you, you, you've, you've, you've led right into this sort of this final point that I might've mentioned to you, which is this whole thing about trust. I, I talk about trust all the time with the folks that I work with. And I talk about trust as it relates to how does one build trust? How do you win people's confidence to know that we are doing the right thing that, as you said very well, has to be defined? Um, and whether it's trust with your customers, whether it's trust with your staff that reports to you, whether it's trust to all the employees in an organization, that's at the heart of one's culture. How do we do that? Um, how? Does Disney, and you've sort of talked about this, how is that embraced there? And yeah. 
how does it come alive? How is it that Disney earns my trust? So which route do you want me to go? Do you want me to go? I, cause I think they're different routes. Uh, yeah. Do you want me to Everyone go kind of leaders up? I'll, I'll take the one, the path less traveled, okay. uh, which is kind of leadership with employees uh, and staff, if you will, or cast members as we call them mm-hmm. at Disney. Um, ultimately, right. Uh, trust is really kind of on this, this dual paradigm. I, this is, this is my take on it that you've got to have, and, and something we talked about at Disney, which is you've got to have personal trust as well as professional trust, right? So you, I've got to know, Hey, I know who Tom is. I know he's a nice guy. I know that, uh, I know some things about his personal life and that endear me to him. Um, so I've got trust that he's going to do right. But then there's a professional trust side of things that I know Tom is actually going to execute on tasks and things that I, I assigned to him. I know Tom, I know that when I work with Tom, he's actually going to get things done and he's going to make me look good doing it. Right. So there's this, this dual side to trust of in, in the workplace of personal trust and professional trust. And so I think at, at Disney it's, it's done really well. And part of the magic comes from that the guests see on the other side is because it's a really well-oiled trusting operation behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, there's all types of different processes and things that we have internally that a guest never sees that allow employees to build trust with one another, whether that be leaders down or, or uh, laterally as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of it is having that common language, right? So everybody knows the common purpose. We refer to it as a purpose. Everybody knows the service standards and things. So what that allows me to do though, is I can pick up the phone and call someone I've never met before, say something like, Hey, I need you to help me create happiness for a guest. And they know that I'm part of the inner circle. I have trust with them because I'm using the same language that they're using. Um, and, and they'll help me out with things mm-hmm. on a closer knit basis, right? There are all sorts of things that the company does and what our leaders would do to help us build that personal trust. Things like having potlucks, things like having those different social events um, that allowed for that trust to build. One of the things from a professional side, I think the harder side to build in your business is professional trust across the board, right? That when you don't directly work with someone, it's hard to build professional trust. So one of the things that we did when I was there, um, you know, I, I worked with another girl and, and we co-founded this group called Disney Young Professionals because at the senior leader level, there's a lot of cross-functional working going on between Disney Institute, Disney Cruise Line, all the different different areas. But at the as you get lower down in the hierarchy, there it was harder to build that professional trust across silos, if you will. So we created this group called Disney Young Professionals. And by the time I left, it was about a thousand plus people strong uh, that were young salaried leaders. And we were working on consulting projects back to the bigger company. So I was working pro bono on projects that were things like what we don't want Uber on property. How can we create things like minivans that have mini mouse on them that are kind of powered by Uber's back system, but are thing it's a technology that a millennial might use. And so it, what it allowed me to do, though, was build relationships, trusting relationships across the company with people in Imagineering that I normally wouldn't have worked with, with people in uh, industrial engineering, in finance, in park operations. And that 
allowed us again to even deeply, even more deeply pick up the phone when a guest needed help and said, Hey, I need you to help me create a happy, create happiness for this guest because now we had those even deeper relationships. Mm. And so I think it's, it's this, it's this building cycle that you have to do. But I think if you're a leader listening to this, you should constantly be thinking about with your team, how can I put my team members in a position where they can build personal and professional trust across the department? Mm -hmm. Well said, David. Well said. It's interesting how sort of that dual thing of personal and professional. I well understand your point about it could even be more of a challenge, certainly in a larger company where there's sort of stratas of trust building because C-suite people sort of operate in a different milieu. And then there's the younger people that operate sort of in their world. So how do you build that? I always talk about accountability. I know I can trust you because you hold yourself accountable. You're going to do something because you know it's part of what you need to do and want to do. And building trust is something which I think you said look, is definitely a building process. It's a bit of a journey to do. How do we get belief, common belief with everybody? Are we all aligned? And so I, I, I talk about that all the time. And I understand completely what you're saying about sort of there's the personal and professional. And when you have to separate them. So I think that there is, but, but the common thing is there is belief in the person, the integrity of the person, and can they deliver? Yeah. And I I'm, trust I'm, Tom, he can. I'm curious on something you said around accountability. I think from our work in college athletics, um, I, I, I see a, a big difference in accountability levels that we had at Disney versus in college athletics. I think there's a much lower standard for accountability in college athletics. And so I'm curious as to your take. Um, Why do you think that? that David? Well, I, I think part of it is because, and I'm, this is my personal take on this. Um, yeah. I, I think a lot of organizations are on institutional welfare in that it doesn't really matter if we make money and perform because the university's paying for us anyway. And I think because that happens, deadlines get missed, meetings, meetings end, and there aren't clear action items out of them. And we just discussed it. And I think it, 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 it to me is a, a bigger issue. And that I, I think, I, I hope everybody listening, I would say accountability to me is one of the things I see lacking a little bit in college athletics. So really make that effort. I mean, that's one of the easiest things is, don't go into a meeting and not have notes and action items be taken and delivered out right afterwards. Designate somebody to do it. Even if it's you, use a Google Doc if you have to and have those action items followed up on. I mean, that was something for us at Disney. It was like every little minuscule action item was followed up on because otherwise we're wasting time. And there was no meetings just to discuss, right? Um, and I think sometimes that happens in college athletics. So I would encourage everybody listening here. That's a small step you can do today. Well, you, you know, somebody said to me years ago when I got started in business, I had had my own agency for a while. And one of the things they said to me is that every day is opening day. Yep. Got to step up. You got to put the curtain. You got to roll the awning out. You got to open the doors up and you got to be ready to deliver. And I don't, I might take a little bit of an, a different approach about accountability, but the one thing I do believe is, is that it's those learnings from, quote, the Disneys of the world where you understand how do you take action. 
how do you hold yourself accountable? It's easy to say I'm accountable for what I do. Mm-hmm. It, but, but the question is, what are you going to do and what's the process through which you deliver the action you say you're going to do? I think there is, because colleges sit in the so-called nonprofit world, mm-hmm. the reality of it is the common bond is that it takes money to thrive. It takes money at Disney to thrive. It takes money in colleges to thrive. Absolutely. And in the world that we're living in today, all of the people here listening full well understand there is an acute situation here where money is all of a sudden not necessarily a commodity anymore. It's, right. it's a, right. it, it could be scarce. So we have to work hard now, at least what I find in, building trust through accountability means you have to do what you say you're going to do. Put your money where your mouth is. Yeah. Have to put those. It's, it's like you have to walk the talk. And if you don't do that and use certain processes to do it, I have seen many times people don't come into a meeting, not necessarily in college athletics, and they're not prepared to be there. What are the axioms you want to discuss? What do you want to accomplish today so we can set people's expectations? There's learning, and whether it's college athletics or not, absolutely that sense of how do we ultimately build trust through accountability. So, Absolutely. Yeah, and I I mean, I'll I'll say two things on that. There's, uh, I mean, one, going into that meeting prepared, right, is a a quick tool that we use. Um, I don't know if you guys ever use this, but this is something that we, we learned at Disney, which is a PPP. So I basically don't, it is rare that you'll see me accept the meeting if it doesn't have a clear purpose, process, and payoff. And when we send meeting invites, nine times out of 10, there's a purpose. Why are we meeting? Process. What are we going to do in this meeting? How's the meeting going to go? And a payoff. Why are we all better off for actually attending the meeting? Um, If you don't have that outline, that means you probably haven't given enough thought to what the meeting is about. Um, That's great. Yeah. 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 And I I think the other thing I was going to say on accountability is just, uh, and as we think about the situation that you described, I do think a lot of D3 schools and D2 schools are are going to be even more valuable to their universities now because you are a kind of a revenue driver from a tuition standpoint and in getting additional, providing that value prop for why a kid should come to the university. Uh, It's not just about the education now, especially as people see the value of digital learning. There's going to be a drop. I mean, there already was starting to be drops in attendance everywhere um, because, because there's less kids going to college, uh, less kids out there. I think you're going to see that even more now. So you, the value that a D3 sports program plays or D2 sports program plays is going to be even stronger now if you can provide a great experience. Yeah. Uh, I would agree with you. I, I, I would agree with you there. I think that's everything will be reshaped now in sort yeah. of how people view a college experience and what type of school is going to be able to deliver on that. And could be a D3, could be a D2. I mean, I'm not here to say which one as much as I do believe that value proposition is going to come to the surface and those who understand how to deliver on that will do it. David, I'm curious as we, as we finish up here a little bit and we started out this, so we were all curious and I've always been curious about, the Disney Institute's foray into the sports market. Mm -hmm. 
And you, knowing the college athletic world as well as you do and serving many college clients, why do you think that colleges see the value of the Disney process and the magic? Why? I know it's a big question, but, but is, there, is there something yeah. that drives it, David? Oh, Outside Alan. of your own brilliance, what is, it about that, that? <laughs> what is it that drives it? I guess two things on that. Um, one, I guess what drives it is probably what drives a lot of other organizations to it. I, I don't. I don't think college is unique in the attachment or the endearment or the um, the looking up to Disney, if you will. I think it. I mean, we we worked with all. When I was at Disney Institute, we worked with manufacturing companies, pharmaceutical companies. I think the, the respect and the renown is, is everywhere. Um, I think to me, what makes college and Disney so interesting is the complexity of the business and of the organizational environment, right? There, at a, any given campus university, there are so many different operations going on from the academic side of things to auxiliary services to the athletic department, each has its own annual operating priorities within a larger organization that sometimes are competing with one another. Mm -hmm. And I think that similarity exists within Disney. Um, and, and so I think there's a, just a lot of commonalities there in terms of how Disney worked, how Disney was able to create those emotional connections um, that, many college campuses do as well. Right. I, I think I look back at my four years at Notre Dame and they're four of the best years of my life. And I think for many of you listening, it's, it's probably the same with your student athletes and kids on campus that those are four of the most memorable years of their lives where they grew as young men and women and made lifetime friends and first time living outside of the house. Right. There, there's so many firsts that happen in college that people have that same emotional connection towards their college alma mater that they do with Disney. Um, you're, you're not getting a, a tattoo of your camp uh, of your mattress company that you use, even though you sleep on it every night. Um, you are getting a tattoo maybe of your college alma mater or of Disney somehow. It's just kind of crazy to me, but um, I, I think, I think there might be even more emotional co uh, connection for college campuses and college universities than there is with Disney. Well, to your point, so I think that's yeah. part of the endearment. Yeah, no, I, I think it's well said, David. I think there are those complexities. Anybody would understand they are colleges or complex organizations with many machinations to them between operations and academics and employment. Union workers. You got it. You hit it. Athletics has got many complexities too, between Title IX and introducing sports and all those things. And all of our listeners fully understand that. But the one thing you said, which is really interesting, which is when we were going down the path of brand, at the heart of it, in order for us to thrive, whether it's college athletics or whether it's Disney, we have to have an emotional connection with our consumer. We have to have, and if we don't have that, we cannot thrive. And the ability to be able to exist in this complex structure 
is to me the magic sauce that Disney probably has, whether perfected or not, certainly has been able to employ as they have grown as a company, certainly a different company when I was there. Yeah. Uh, adult entertainment, at least at that time, you know, live action films and, you know, sober screen partners and all those things didn't exist. It was right around the time of Michael Eisner. So Disney, I understand what you're saying about the ability that Disney has to understand the complexities of an organization and how making those emotional connections is part of the culture, which is where we started out. You talked about the culture of what makes us thrive because that informs many things. Yeah, so, absolutely. And, and again, that emotional connection is paid just as clearly at Disney to the emotional connection that our employees have with the brand, right? If, if, you're, if you're solely focusing on the, the emotional connections that you're trying to create with your guests and you're overlooking how your employees feel about your workplace, you're destined to fail, right? So you, you've really got to pay close attention to the emotional connections that you're creating with both your guests or your customers or your student athletes, whatever it is, as well as your employees. Well said, Dave, and that certainly extends to the world of college athletics. No how, do we, how do we get those coaches and the staff to be aligned with the vision so they can impart that to their student athletes? And, and you know, it's a rippling effect. So I, I get that completely. Well, we have been a uh, little over 45, 50 minutes um, and by. really appreciate all of your time today. And uh, I know our listeners will really enjoy sort of hearing more about everything that you've said. So um, my thanks to you. I, hope I appreciate you, you having me on, Tom. You, you bet. And I hope you continue to be safe and healthy. Uh, hopefully I will talk to you soon. And um um, be well, as we said. Perfect. Thanks, Tom. All Appreciate right, David. It. See you. Bye-bye. Have a good one.